Hello and welcome everyone to the UDA Political Economy Forum podcast. My name is Nicholas Wittstock and I'm a PhD student in the Political Science Department at the University of Washington. This week's podcast is a conversation between me and Victor Manaldo, who is Professor of Political Science at the UW. The topic of this conversation is capitalism. We discuss what capitalism is, its history, its challenges, and its future. I hope you enjoy our conversation. I find it really confusing to talk about reality or society in these weird categories like capitalism. I don't really feel like that's simplifying or, or making the conversation any easier. I'm not really convinced that people have the same understanding of this term when they use it right. in conversation. I feel like it's more some sort of signifier that maybe has some shared understanding, but there's also a lot of other stuff that people just put into that word, right? And then you have five different conversations just because everyone is using the concept in a different way. Well, my view there is rather than impose a nomenclature and a organizational framework, why not go with what's there, but clarify it and reclaim it? So I'm comfortable using the term, even though in the past I wasn't so much. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's the world is given. And so why not use that word to actually shine some light where there's a lot of heat? But right. I see your point. It always is a reductionist exercise to use an ism. Yeah. But why not start there? I think that's fine. Rather than resist, to me, what's the normal current in the river, right? Yeah, that makes sense. But do you feel like, um, I think my question is always, I suppose there are some key characteristics of, of uh, capitalism, which I'm assuming would be most importantly private property, what is capitalism and what isn't. Not open to interpretation, but um, I, I'm not really convinced that there's a shared definition per se. Well, let me tell you, I agree that there's not a shared definition, but I think it's always important to offer one and see if we can arrive at a consensus around the definition or not. Mm -hmm. And for me, as someone who researches capitalism, writes about capitalism and teaches it, it's important to be forceful about my definition. Couldn't agree and then more, yeah. to relax it if it makes sense, but to start strongly with a very precise one, if, if that makes sense. I like it. Would you like to know what my definition is? Or I would, would like to know that very much. Or, or would it be valuable for me to get your definition or sense first or what you think people think it is? Well, I, I don't want to necessarily try to guess what, what, what most people's definition of capitalism is. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, I would say it's a, uh, it's a set of economic institutions that yeah, guide economic exchange effectively, right? And it's based mm -hmm. on private property rights, price system, financial markets. Do you think that that's what other people have in mind? You said you're not going to speculate, but why don't mm. you do it? So what do you so, think people have in mind? So I think that's, the, that's I think my main issue with this category of, of this ism of capitalism, right? Because I think what people have in mind when they hear the word is that capitalism is this sort of vague, oppressive, unnatural system that is somehow guided or instrumentalized by people in power to 
make other people do things that they otherwise wouldn't do. I, I feel like it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's always assumed that it's extremely unnatural, right? And that it sort mm-hmm. of forces people into these coercive behaviors, right? That mm-hmm. they ordinarily would never choose to be engaging in. And um, yeah, so I, it, it strikes me that it has this semi-conspiratorial mm-hmm. uh, flair or um, yeah, mm-hmm. aftertaste. When, when I, when, even when I say the word, right? And I think, yeah, I don't know, re- react to that. What do you think? Is that something so you agree with? So George Soros and the Illuminati are forcing us to be uh, capitalists, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah, something <laughs> to like that. To be involved in ruthless cutthroat competition, right? And do things that are not in our nature. Um, there's a lot to unpack there. I will make a concession. I do not think capitalism is natural in that at least the modern version relies on a lot of things we call public goods in mm-hmm. political economy that do have to be provided by a centralized political authority mm. to reach the scale and sophistication we've reached now versus a village capitalism of barter and trucking and exchange that's simpler. Mm-hmm. So I'll give folks that much in that I do think they're onto something. It isn't natural. It's not some organic thing. Although there's a lot to that in certain elements, but the infrastructure and scaffolding is generated by political institutions. Whether it's against people's will, I don't know. That's a deep philosophical question. But at the heart of the definition, I do not believe that it's, a, it's coercive. Mm-hmm. Because it is about positive sum interactions, not negative sum or zero sum. So when I speak of capitalism, I mean modern capitalism. Uh, there's four components. And I also mean the ingredients of sustained modern growth. That's what capitalism is, in a sense. And by sustained modern growth, I mean 2% or more per year growth rates that were ushered in after the first industrial revolution that began circa 1760 in England, spread throughout Europe, reached the American shores, spread throughout the world. There's a heated debate about how many industrial revolutions we've had. My own view is we're in the fourth, so we've had three and are beginning the fourth industrial revolution, but that's not as important as, yes, there was a revolution. There was a lagged effect with growth. It took a while for growth to reach escape velocity into the exponential type of compound growth where you get a qualitatively different path of growth, a structural break, if you will, with the past. But to me, that's what capitalism is about. Does that make sense, Nick? So, but so me, um, yeah, just to ahead, push please. you a little bit here, yeah. right? Because I haven't even defined it yet, Nick. Uh, okay, okay, sorry. Okay, yeah, please. Okay, you're right. You're right. You're right. Push that's me. Sorry. No, no, go, go, go. No, I think... Um, for my interjecting to make any sense, I think you have to provide a definition first. Okay, here we go. Here's the four components. The first that you alluded to is to allocate the inputs to production, to the production process, based on prices, okay? Mm-hmm. And the exchange of those goods and services based on prices, the intersection of supply curves and demand curves. Now, that tends to take form as a system of specialization along the lines of comparative advantage, um, and especially internationally because of the scale and because of the sheer amount of individuals and firms participating. You tend to see that in high relief, but even within a country, 
you tend to see trade based on specialization along the lines of comparative advantage. And that itself is a byproduct of allocating inputs to production based on prices uh, and the exchange of goods and services based on prices. So there's three other components. Is there any follow-up on the first you'd, have, you'd want to offer? The second important thing is that competition between firms to provide goods and services, it's important. And in fact, competition in a labor market as well between individuals seeking jobs or competing on a labor market would also matter. But competition between firms is first and foremost. Firms being hierarchical organizations that use a form of dictatorship and coercion within their four uh, corners. This uh, being the theory of the firm originated by Ronald Coase, but then continued by Oliver Williamson and a host of other very sharp economists and political economists. But firms are important in terms of competing in this marketplace. So not all inputs are allocated by prices, although you might argue that there are shadow prices guiding the allocation of uh, scarce resources within a firm. But it is important to realize that it's not always markets. There are organizations called firms, and they must compete in order to have capitalism. That's my second component. The third, and this is what sets modern capitalism apart from Smithian capitalism, if you will, or just gains from trade or even village capitalism or the capitalism you see throughout the world before the first industrial revolution. This is um, Joseph Schumpeter's contribution, that it's about innovation, incentives and opportunities to innovate, where new ideas, technology, business methods, and ways to organize production and exchange are paramount. Here's the fourth essential component. Financial markets must have a big role to play in allocating scarce resources and scarce savings in particular to their highest value use. They help foster trade, capital accumulation, efficient corporate governance, but most importantly, as I said in the third component, pushing innovation forward. So financial markets like banks, stock markets, venture capital, angel investors, etc., being very important. And that's it. That's what capitalism is, in case folks at home are wondering. So I would, I would say that there's some tension here, right? Because I think you're defining with your four integral pillars that you've just laid out, you're effectively defining a set of institutions as capitalism, right? At the same time, you're starting this discussion with... Um, what I would argue is, is an Austrian or, or Schumpeterian conception of capitalism as a historical process. So, so it, would you, because you allude to historical economic growth and um, the hockey stick and technological change and all that. So would you say there is a, what do you think is the difference between historical economic growth, the history of technological change of the last 250 years, and um, is that capitalism? Or is capitalism a set of institutions that you uh, described at the end there? It's a set of institutions that are responsible for modern economic growth based on technology and innovation. Mm -hmm. The institutions evolved historically and are still evolving. And capitalism itself feeds back on the institutions in terms of the byproduct being firms competing, innovating, uh, markets for goods and services, prices mattering more than coercion or government diktat, 
financial markets that evolve based on the institutions that create financial markets like property rights, contract enforcement, the rule of law. All of this stuff, yes, gives birth to certain outcomes that then feed back into the institutions themselves. So it is an evolutionary system that keeps changing. So yes, does that answer the question? Uh, yeah, it does. I think um, one of the reasons that I'm asking is because I'm not sure how deep we want to get into this, but I think most criticisms of capitalism, in, either I don't want to say conflate, but I think at the very least um, are a little bit imprecise in what it is exactly that they're critical of. Right? Because I think there is some criticism of this historical process of the last 250 years, um, when people uh, allude to colonialism or environmental degradation or oppression of various kinds and the institutions themselves. Would you, would you agree with that? Well, I think that's fair. One could use my definition and then start to parcel the complaints into different buckets, right? Are we complaining about the evo historical evolutionary process that brought us here? Mm -hmm. Are we complaining about the institutions that support capitalism? Are we complaining about the byproducts of those institutions, capitalism itself? Are we complaining about the way that human beings respond to the challenges and problems generated by these institutions and these practices? Like to correct market failures, some of them might be a byproduct of capitalism. Some of these market failures may not have existed before, but now they exist because of the markets themselves. I don't know. So yeah, it's a helpful way to think about the criticisms, I guess. But to me, in order to criticize something, you do need to define it clearly first. And I guess let's just be courageous enough to offer our own definition, and that's it there. Perfect. I can tell you what capitalism isn't, if you'd like. That would have been exactly my next question, right? Like, how do we identify? And I think a lot of younger people are... Um, I don't know how to say this, but like people sort of of my generation and younger. So you're saying I'm old and then you're implying <laughs> exactly I'm That's what I didn't want to say. Yeah. Uh -huh. But um, I think that there is a difficulty of conceptualizing what a society would look like that is not capitalist. So yeah, I'd be very much interested in you talking about what isn't capitalism. Well, how about this? One way to say that is a society that doesn't run its economy according to those four things that's a not not a modern capitalist system okay but that's so not does that mean sorry. that's not interesting right to say that yeah well i think it is or mm -hmm. at least i would have one question so yeah. if i said i'm going to repress financial markets in some way in that they're no longer free but rather i'm going to allocate financial capital by fiat through some sort of governmental agency um does that mean that the system that uh, this is happening in is, is subsequently no longer capitalist. Is that what you're saying? Well, that's where you get into a taxonomical argument about how many angels on the head of a pin that becomes almost metaphysical. Mm -hmm. One could just say, let's allow it to be a sliding scale and there's no such thing no society, no country that's 100% capitalist, but there's ones that approach the definition and ones that get away from it. In almost every government and financial system, there's a little bit of financial repression because the government is not only regulating the financial markets or even creating them through bank chartering or through the institutions of corporate governance and the like that allow asset markets to blossom, but it's also borrowing money, for example. Right. Or it has influence over the central bank, the lender of last resort. 
So yeah, there's no perfect place. And by the way, let me make something clear. I am not endorsing capitalism in this conversation. I have my own views on the virtues and vices, but that's just not helpful right now. So I don't want younger viewers, middle-aged viewers such as myself and older viewers to conflate those things. This is not a conversation, I hope you'll agree, on the virtues and vices in terms of here's our normative agenda we want to impose on others. Our goal here, Nick, is educational, right? Exactly, absolutely. Now that we got that out of the way, can I tell you what capitalism isn't? Please. So it's not just the accumulation of physical capital, which I think some Marxist scholars, or at least the Marxist framework, tends to put out there. It is not the accumulation of land, machinery, and buildings associated with higher amounts of savings. That's a part of it, but it's not necessarily essential. In fact, if you think about it, ancient societies accumulated capital much better than we do, including pre-agricultural societies. The accumulation of stone tools or animal carcasses and furs by our nomadic hunter-gatherer ancestors before the agricultural revolution. Also, you can have high levels of development with relatively low levels of capital, like Hong Kong, for example, as long as you have technology. Singapore is another example that comes to mind. Rather than 30 buildings, I can have a skyscraper. Rather than several factories that churn out cars, I can have one efficient factory run by a robot. Mm -hmm. Rather than a bunch of hardware, I can have software. What else is not capitalism? It's certainly not imperialism. Ask the Romans, the Aztecs, the Mongols, the Persians, the Indians, the Congolese, and the Turks. They all had empires before modern capitalism. So does that mean that you say capitalism or imperialism is not a defining feature of capitalism? No, it is not. But now the British Empire was capitalistic and was imperial, correct? Right. Yet Hong Kong and Singapore are city-states that were former colonies. Are they capitalists because the British imposed it on them? For sure. But that doesn't mean that it's imperialist by nature or in, in its DNA. Mm -hmm. Because by that token, everything's imperialist, because imperialism is the history of the world to a certain extent. So this goes back to your question. The historical process that created and spread capitalism, was it woven in with imperialism? It was because the British happened to really be at the forefront with the Industrial Revolution. But that doesn't mean we should smuggle it into the definition. That's just not helpful. Because then the definition of everything is, is laden with imperialism, since the whole world is a story in a sense of imperialism, correct? And science is imperialistic, cooking is imperialistic, culture is imperialistic, our pets are imperialistic. And then it means nothing to say that. Yeah, Should that I continue? Sense. Please. It is not greed because our ancestors were just as greedy, if not more, because they had no choice. They were living at subsistence. If you weren't greedy, you died. And that's not to put our ancestors down. And that's not to put us down. And it's not to say there's not a normal distribution around greed. There's probably a bell curve where the tails are greedy and there's tails that are very altruistic on either side. And in the middle, there's everyone else like you and me. Sometimes we're greedy and sometimes we're not. And hopefully we, we restrain our greediness with other things that makes, make us human. It's not oppression. It's not a zero-sum thing. Workers are not worse off on average under modern capitalism. If, if anything, workers are better off. And I'm not saying that as a normative thing. I'm saying that just in terms of if you look at welfare outcomes, if you look at standards of living, on average and for those at the bottom of the distribution in terms of absolute improvements in the standard of living. Could they be better? Of course they could. Are some societies better? 
at egalitarianism? Yes, they are. In fact, the social democracies like Denmark, Sweden, Norway, they're really good at Iceland as well. But it is not oppression in that the definition I uh, shared with you does not include oppression. If anything, it includes positive sum interactions, where surplus is generated by uh, folks exchanging on markets. Let's talk about the hockey stick. This is all Robert Gordon for the United States, Deidre McCloskey for the world, and Darren Asimoglu in a 2009 textbook on macroeconomics and the macroeconomics of growth. None of this is me, by the way. So take them to task if you don't like what I'm sharing with you. Uh, this is based on historical GDP data. It's also based on other data about labor markets and the like. And some of it is based on surveys maybe, but I think most of what I'm going to say is GDP, value added in the economy, the size of the pie. So here are some factoids. Again, I, you know, I wish that I had like done the descriptive stats on this, but I haven't. I've just been a, a reader of this stuff and I've digested it. But what these folks say is that since 1820, circa 1820, the standard of living has increased by a factor of 30 for some of the poorest countries in the world. That's 2,990% increase, okay? If you think about it, that's going from like $3 a day to like $80 a day or $100 a day for the United States or $120 a day for Luxembourg. Why is this the case? We have a doubling of income every few decades, if not from generation to generation. And that's due to the exponential growth. For example, in the United States, per capita income at the end of the 19th century doubled from $4,000 to $8,000 in the first quarter of the 20th century. Then it doubles again from that $8,000 to $16,000 at the end of World War II. Then it doubles again from $16,000 to $32,000 for the U.S. by the early 1990s, and then again. UK is similar, and so are other countries that start at lower baselines, like Spain, Brazil, China, even Botswana. So we see the industrial and technological leaders like the United States, Britain, the Netherlands leading the pack, Germany late to the game but catching up pretty well, starting at higher baselines, but the doubling and doubling, the exponential stuff is pretty representative of other places in the world. The Asian tigers, the so-called Asian tigers, are also examples of the exponential growth where they've been able to narrow the gap in terms of the level of development. We might think of Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea, before that, Japan. Later, Southeast Asian countries like Taiwan as well, Indonesia even. We might think of the Eastern European countries, especially after the fall of the Berlin Wall experiencing exponential growth and getting closer, narrowing the gap with their Western European neighbors. I could go on with individual countries. Spain is a really good example in Europe, uh, Greece and Italy as well, but Spain I'm much more familiar with due to some of my own research. So that's some of the descriptive statistics. This is correlated with increased uh, consumption of protein, this is correlated with increased wages on average is everything I'm saying, but also for the lower end of the distribution. But let me just keep speaking about averages because that's what I did with GDP. In fact, wages for non-specialized workers also. This is correlated with vast improvements in life expectancy, 
not only for life expectancy at birth, but all the way up the hierarchy, obviously with diminishing returns, because if you're 70, you're going to hit some kind of ceiling. This is correlated with higher consumption per capita, very highly correlated. The R squared on this uh, is ridiculous, almost approaching one. In fact, it's correlated with happiness in a nonlinear fashion as well. Thoughts, Nick? Another, I think you mentioned life expectancy, right? I think that's an extremely dramatic statistic to report, right? Where in, um, I think in the US, the average life expectancy at 1900 was around about 50 years or something, which is quite remarkable. And then uh, through, yeah, enormous improvements, especially in uh, child mortality, I think you have today a life expectancy that is approaching 80 years, I believe. Now, I guess the important question here, though, is to ask, is this really, is this really a development that we have to thank the capitalist institutions for that you were describing earlier, right? Is this really because uh, we're allocating um, goods through prices? Is this really because we have firms to compete? Is this really because of, you know, or is it really just because of something else, right? Because, I mean, in, in Russia, you have dramatic um, increases in life expectancy after uh, the Second World War under possibly the most opposite institutions you will ever find. What are your thoughts on that? Here's where ideology is not helpful. And we're shrinking the space of ideology by using science, which means facts, logic, and evidence, is helpful. It isn't only capitalism in that capitalism itself is a byproduct of states, modern states that generate the institutions that give birth to capitalism and regulate the market. And it's states that are underpinning those four components that I mentioned before. But what they've done is that they've created a juggernaut of productivity enhancements that do explain these improvements in living standards. Because if you do the math, going back to Robert Solo, who won a Nobel Prize for this in the 1980s, the largest chunk of improvements in GDP and in all these other things connected to GDP is productivity improvements. And they themselves are a byproduct of technology and innovation. And technology and innovation is a byproduct of modern capitalism. Now, again, what role does the state have? It has a huge role to play because to get the scale and sophistication that we have in terms of the extent of markets at the national level, let alone at the global level, it took a strong state. And in fact, the welfare state has a lot to do, let's say, with reducing risk or the precariousness of the market to maybe create an entrepreneurial class or at least protect them from some of the downsides of capitalism or and of creative destruction, which is the hallmark of modern capitalism or the modern patent system, intellectual property rights, the coercive state apparatus in terms of the legal system, in terms of the ability to disseminate ideas in terms of the ability to assign and enforce property rights to ideas and to transfer technology within countries between firms and borders. A lot of that is the modern state and its public goods. And then so much of modern capitalism is the solution of market failures when it comes to research and development and before that basic science, where sometimes private firms competing in the marketplace don't have incentives necessarily to think about innovations in nuclear technology or basic scientific research or even some basic R&D having to do with guided missile systems, satellites, the internet, 
uh, radar, uh, global GPS positioning systems, or even some of the innovations in hardware and software that were a product of government procurement in the United States or the military, as a pejorative, the military industrial complex for all the bad things that some folks su subscribe to them. Some of the good things are mass procurement of the technology that guided the third industrial revolution beginning after the Second World War, for example. So there's no easy answer what's responsible for this. It is capitalism in a sense, but capitalism itself is a function of states. And the way capitalism has evolved, the state adjusts and it regulates the economy or it coaxes it along with government procurement or government providing basic research or at least financing some of it and R&D. And the last thing I'll say, maybe we'll get into it later, education in terms of financing and providing the education that is complementary, especially skilled labor and science, engineering, and managerial, a managerial workforce that is able to coordinate the production of resources within sophisticated global firms, for example. I would invite listeners to the podcast, by the way, to check our claims for themselves and to make sure that we're not just making stuff up. But there's a vast literature that supports some of the stuff I'm going to say right now. Capitalism, in terms of how I've defined it, and obviously with the state underpinning it and complementing it and adjusting it, is what explains why we have consistent economic growth that has lifted billions of people out of poverty. In fact, it explains why we have 8 billion people alive today. If you think of something like the green revolution that allowed us to have more resilient crops at a larger scale without minimizing the role of government. As we've said, you and I, Nick, on this uh, podcast today, they're complementary. It is the way that we've ameliorated hunger, disease, and prevented death, especially with improvements in productivity and technologies around medicine, but also just housing, mm -hmm. around transportation, clothing, food, and a bunch of other amenities. Sanitation important to you. Oh, sanitation, which also we have to give credit to the state to scaling that up and financing a lot of it as well. Do you want to say anything else on sanitation? I'm glad you interjected with that. No, I think it's just a very much undervalued um, and, and underestimated improvement. I think it's just the general living standards, but also health, um, health outcomes, right? Same for probably uh, the electrification of the home, which is basically universal across industrialized economies. You know what I would say, Nick? I'm so glad you brought this up. Mm -hmm. Don't trust us. Trust Robert Gordon, one of the preeminent economic historians of American development, of economic development. His book, I think, should be compulsory. I'm not into diktats or like telling people <laughs> what to do usually. But I do think it should be compulsory reading to get a sense of the vast, drastic, unbelievable improvements in living standards just in the United States. And one of the big things he attributes that to, and one of the big patterns of improvements has been electrification, indoor plumbing, sanitation, the indoor toilet, things that are simple and that we take for granted. And that is at the heart of capitalism and it's at the heart of the evolution of markets and the economy. So I would really recommend that book. The other thing I would say is let's get even closer to brass tacks, right? I would invite all the young viewers to watch a movie that 
that was made in the 1970s. We don't have to go back further. I was born in 1977. Look at the quality of the cars. Look at the quality of the indoor appliances and fixtures in the homes. Look at the quality of the technology and look at the type of technology. People are using phones, telephones, you know, with landlines. They're using typewriters. The cars were unsafe. They were clunky. They were gas guzzlers. They were uncomfortable. They got really hot in the summer and really cold in the winter. They did not perform well on the road. You know, people's entertainment options were limited. And now imagine if I went back further, 100 years, 200 years, right? People didn't have supercomputers in their pockets that they could buy for like $100. In fact, Amazon was giving its phones away before it discontinued them when it tried its, its hand at hardware in terms of the handsets it was making. I think it was called the Amazon Fire or something like that. Just think of the sheer amount of television episodes, podcasts, uh, reading material that's uh, available for free online. Nick, are there any other things that you want to talk about in terms? Oh, let, let, let me say one last thing. Uh, clothing, the quality of our clothing and for its price is undescribable versus the memories I have of the clothing I wore when I was a kid, which was just expensive and not very high quality or high performance. I can just think of sports apparel that we all wear now because we're on Zoom, uh, which is another innovation that has allowed us to get through this pandemic, maybe not with style and grace, but at least muddle through. But are there things that touch a chord with what I'm seeing in terms of the quality or sheer amount of consumer, consumer goods and services that you think represent this massive improvement in living standards? Yeah, I do. I do think it does. I think it's, it's really hard to do it justice, but I think we've, we've, uh, we've tried at least. As you've learned about what capitalism is and isn't, or thought more critically about it. What are lessons that you think are helpful for yourself and others or questions that have been raised by that? So I've personally grown up politically, I suppose, or I've been become politically conscious, if you will, during so the 2007-2008 financial crisis in the US, the mortgage crisis, and then subsequently the European debt crisis in 2011, and I remember that when I was in school, this topic of environmental degradation and climate change has always been extremely salient. So I would say that I have practically never experienced much optimism around me relating to the capacity of capitalism to deliver, if you will, right? It was always, there was always some narrative of crisis. And um, as a result, I feel like I know very few people who would proudly say that they're pro-capitalist uh, without immediately feeling the need to qualify that in, in, in some way, right? I feel like nobody really says that out loud for some reason. I feel like even, even people who, who say that capitalism is a good um, set of institutions to organize society by, I feel like they say that more out of some resigned frustration almost, right? Like sort of realizing, okay, well, there are no good alternatives. So this is sort of the best that we have for some reason. Right. So what I, the reason why I'm telling this story is that I think that um, what, what's most convincing to me is that um, there are different sets of institutions that you can choose societally that will have different outcomes, but these outcomes aren't uh, immediate. Right? This is a very long-term process. So I think to me, this Schumpeterian understanding of capitalism as a process with a lot of ups and downs and possibly very sustained downs, 
makes the most sense. And it's not clear to me that you can really do anything about that either. Our understanding of how a lot of things work is, is very much incomplete. But additionally, I think that, yeah, I think there might just not be really much that you can do about uh, the welfare outcomes at different points in time, right? So um, what, I was, what I'm trying to get at is that I think it's hard to make the case that the capitalist institutions that you have described haven't been instrumental in creating the modern world. But that does not mean that the developments along the way have been positive for everyone or in every minute, right? So there's, there's always stretches in which it's, during which it seems at least in retrospect that people were kind of worse off in the short term. Right. Marx and, was very uh, perceptive about that in exactly. the wake of industrialization in Britain and automation. Exactly. Right. So you could you could make the case that in, in this time when a lot of people are moving to urban centers because, yeah, for, for a variety of reasons, because the wages are higher, but also because they don't really have any work anymore in, in, in the countryside. Right. That this is a situation that you could argue somehow makes them better off maybe a little bit, but in, in some very real ways, it also makes them worse off. And I think that's at least the perception. So I'm wondering if the last 20 years or the next five years might be a period in which sort of the, the outcomes are actually not that great. And it, it might take a while for things to pick up again. I mean, this is a long, very long-winded way of trying to communicate that I think that there are um, possibly pronounced or, or very long dolls in this development. And um, I don't know, do you share that view? What you said, it was incredibly eloquent and helpful for moving the discussion along. And let me unpack some of that. Is that okay? Please. Here's why us not being ideologues and hacks is helpful. Because we're not here to convince people that capitalism is the greatest thing. Mm -hmm. Or to try to brainwash them to become capitalists or to you know, sing its praises without criticism. In fact, again, I don't necessarily know if my job is to like or promote capitalism. It's hard enough to understand it mm -hmm. and let listeners make up their own mind. And so now let's talk about the trade-offs, okay? Inequality, no question, because innovation is about the generation of rents in that firms and individuals that generate a lot of surplus because they do something new that generates new demand for goods and services can get pretty wealthy. Innovating a new technology or a new approach or a new product. Now, if markets are working well with entry and exit and the allocation of resources according to prices, you should see creative destruction and you should eventually see the dissipation of those rents. You should see uh, new firms enter the market and um, give them a run for their money, et cetera, right? Which is terrible for the old firms, by the way, right? It, it's terrible. Creative destruction is terrible if you're... Exactly. Uh, actually, if you're at the top right now of the S&P 500 or of the NASDAQ index, you hate capitalism because creative destruction is going to eat your lunch, right? Exactly. But there is such a thing that Piketty points to in his book, Capital in the 21st Century, is the dynastic wealth inequality and income inequality, less dynastic, but also uh, there's an inequality in income. I would 
would just say, is that capitalism or is that human beings doing what human beings always have done? And capitalism just generated so much more wealth and income so that it's just more pronounced. That's an empirical question. And that's not the point of what I'm saying. And in fact, I'm giving a concession to the critics and I'm saying inequality is part of it. And it could even be drastic inequality we've never been accustomed to in the history of the world. Now, there was massive inequality between lords and peasants or kings and let's say, during the feudal ages in, in Europe and China and Japan. But that maybe pales in comparison to the inequality between someone with a flat screen TV and a smartphone and a car. Yes, in absolute terms, they're better off than their ancestors, but some rich moguls might be able to fly to the other end of the world in a private jet at their leisure, protect themselves from some of the risks and costs of modern society, have access to better forms of knowledge, entertainment, and possibilities for their children, and even be happier and less exposed to technology or disease. So I am in no way diminishing the problems we face as a species, as Americans, as uh, folks in the 2020, right? Let me keep criticizing capitalism and the trade-offs, right? You mentioned creative destruction. That's a huge trade-off, right? Incumbent firms die off and are replaced by new ones. Old ideas fail and are replaced by new ones. New ways of, of organizing production. Competitive labor markets means that people are fired or they become obsolete. This means instability and insecurity, vulnerability and fear about the unknown and the uncertain. Constant innovation means constant change and that's disconcerting. You know, human beings are, need a certain sense of security and stability, right? And automation, especially going on now with AI, the internet of things and in just increased automation in general, may mean increasing competition compensation for skilled workers and diminishing compensation for unskilled workers, therefore exacerbating inequality. The final point here on the trade-offs, vibrant financial markets might mean speculation and, and financial crises like 2008, which you brought up. So these are all problems, right? Not to mention environmental problems because there's a more intensive well, extensive use of resources, not intensive. On the intensive margin, actually, we use in resources more efficiently. For example, to make a, a product like a television or a, a washing machine or a table, resources per capita are much lower than they were before. But now there are 8 billion people on Earth that can afford televisions and washing machines and tables, right? So environmental uh, uh, problems are also part of this, right? Would you like me to get into how we shouldn't be pessimistic though and how these things can all be addressed? Yeah, I think that's exactly where I want to go, right? I think what I'm trying to communicate is that I have the impression that a lot of young people have experienced very few instances or uh, have very few experiences that make them very optimistic about capitalism, if that makes sense, right? right? right. I don't think, I'm not sure I have ever experienced even um, a real boom. Right. There is, I think, or a palpable sense of, you know what, maybe, maybe growth is over. Maybe capitalism has sort of run its course. Maybe this is more of a time for redistribution, right? Like we've, we've sort of, we've run this game for as long as we could, but now I think we really need new policies, right? I think that's mm -hmm. sort of a very palpable sense. 
So, but you say we should keep uh, and stay uh, motivated and, and optimistic about capitalism and the future. Well, again, I'm not here to cheerlead for capitalism. I'm just telling you what the record is, right? I think it would be a mistake for me to say, let's be pro-capitalist. Let's just get the record straight. And if we want to criticize capitalism, maybe we'll have even stronger critiques, right? Does mm -hmm. that make sense? That makes a lot of sense. But let me convince you just as facts that you're better off in many ways than, again, I talked about movies from the 70s, so maybe the young people should watch many more of those movies. Uh, <laughs> the special effects, by the way, are terrible if you watch Star Wars, not the uh, revised edition where Lucas put in digital effects, but the original version, the most clunky, artificial, non-believable special effects. But back then we didn't know better, so we just uh, suspended our disbelief. Trust me on this, or just think about it. You guys have a supercomputer in your pocket with all of the information about science, medicine, technology, and like entertainment or whatever at your fingertips, right? More information than your ancestors could ever have had. More information than was stored in the library at Alexandria. More information that was physically stored in the library at UW 20 years ago. That there, and a lot of that is free, or there's a price, but it's not pecuniary in that you're paying with your time or you're paying with the fact that you're going to get hounded with ads or you're going to pay in the fact that you're get, you'll get trolled or something, right? Right there is exhibit A. Here's another exhibit. We are going to get a vaccine, if not several, in record time for COVID because of the partnership between government and capitalism, because of intellectual property rights that protect the patents to medicine, but also because the government has stepped in with its procurement and with its enforcement of those property rights and because it's regulated markets so to provide financing to these firms and because some of these efforts are government or university led and universities themselves reflect government efforts to subsidize education, right? So again, I'm not saying this is all just pharmaceuticals, it's not. How else can I convince you that we're better off? There's still hunger in the world, there's still food insecurity, COVID has made things worse. There's deglobalization taking place because of COVID. We're shooting ourselves in the foot with trade wars and the like. But the sheer quantity and quality of food is unprecedented, guys. It's unbelievable. People are going hungry much less than they once did. And let's just talk about pre-COVID for a second. I'm not saying it's all capitalism, but a big part of it is the fact that we have agriculture at a larger scale with more profitable agribusiness. I'm not saying they've done everything right. They've done a lot wrong. And I'm not saying we shouldn't regulate firms when there's market failures or when they do things that are bad for consumers or whatever. But it is a fact that the sheer amount of food and its quality has improved. That doesn't mean there aren't food deserts in urban areas. That doesn't mean there aren't marginalized communities that deserve fresh produce. That doesn't mean we can't do better. We can do much better. And if anything, obesity is a big problem. But that speaks to other fundamental problems in our society that are about structural inequality, that are about government failures, that are about market failures that go unaddressed. Let me say something about what capitalism isn't to try to wrap these things up a bit better. You brought up the financial crisis. I want to highlight attention to a book by Stephen Haber and Charles Calamira. Stephen Haber was my dissertation advisor at Stanford. An incredibly brilliant man, economic historian, political economist, and political scientist, who wrote a book that pretty much spelled out the political economy of the financial crash in the United States that then spread to the rest of the world. And this is a way of me saying, please read this book. Here's another book you have to read. 
capitalism is not crony capitalism. And crony capitalism is rigging markets so that the winners win no matter what, heads or tails. And a large part of the 2008 crash had to do with rigging financial markets so that some of the players in the banking industry, but outside of it, could take risks at the expense of taxpayers and at the expense of some of the folks that lost their homes after the massive defaults on their mortgages. And just like you can create a market that's functional and that leads to the allocation of resources according to prices, competition between firms, innovation, and efficient financial markets, you can capture government to undo these things or to game them for your own purposes and not for the welfare of the rest of society or consumers. And that's precisely what they lay out in terms of explaining the financial crisis of 2008. So I don't want to go into the details, but I just want to say in my own research, I've also outlined how in the developing world, rich, powerful politicians, bankers, and industrialists can rig a system so they never lose or so that they don't have to compete and innovate or so that they can get financial resources channeled to them that are subsidized, but that actually expropriate savers or are bad for consumers because they face higher interest rates, let's say, on the financial market. So capitalism is not crony capitalism, and it could be that a lot of the disillusionment with capitalism has to do with crony capitalism run amok, with the capture of government and regulation by powerful brokers that don't want to compete or innovate. The final thing I'll say is I'll put a plug for an op-ed I wrote on how Sweden is a more capitalist country than the United States and work I'm doing now on a book about the fourth industrial revolution that tries to outline why that's the case and why we could look to different examples, be they Singapore, Hong Kong, Sweden, even Chile and Latin America, for welfare state systems, all flawed and imperfect, that might smooth out the rough edges that are part of capitalism, but that we don't necessarily have to just accept. We could say, let's solve some of these market failures, or let's smooth out some of the wrinkles that are associated with capitalism. Yeah, I like that. I think what I would say is the most positive thing about capitalism is that problems are generally considered to be opportunities. There is no reason to throw your hands up in despair, right? It's rather the case that it's sort of impended upon you to deliver solutions. Like if, there is a, if something is not delivered, then you should really step up and be the entrepreneur to deliver what it, what it is that people apparently need, right? So I think um, as a young person, I think that should really be the perspective that you take. What do you think? I agree. You want to give examples from environmental, the environmental landscape when it comes to innovations that could help us deal with climate change. And then I'll say something about market failures and, and climate change if you'd like. But I'd like to hear you. You've been involved with this much more than me. What are some examples you can think of that give you hope not to be an apologist for capitalism, but just to talk about entrepreneurship and innovation in this sphere? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Climate change has always been an issue that has been widely discussed sort of in sort of my generation. But at the same time, it was always communicated in a way of like, we need to completely change the way that we organize society. Yet in the last five years, I've really seen a lot of incredibly creative and crafty solutions um, on the technical side, uh, which is, I mean, A, obviously to create new sources of energy, for example, that it can then be used to create new forms of transportation, which do not create the same pollutants. But additionally, uh, there are companies that literally turn 
CO2 in otherwise usable commodities and thereby effectively take something that is considered to be completely negative in the production uh, process and just turn it into something positive, which I think is extremely inspiring. So, yeah, I think that there is really a lot in that space to be done. And, and I wonder if it, if it really just needs a perspective shift or if this is just sort of a, a mistake in, in how you uh, think about problems or, yeah, I don't know if it's something that's going to fade soon because people come up with creative ideas of how to turn issues into solutions. Well, I think that's wonderful what you've recounted about uh, entrepreneurship when it comes to climate and, and uh, how innovation can help. What I would say, you know, it's funny, this podcast, now that I think about it, is a lot about what capitalism isn't versus what it is, right? Are you realizing that yourself? What do you mean was, uh, with us? Well, a lot of what we're talking is. about it is what it isn't. Capitalism is not crony capitalism. Capitalism right. is not imperialism, right? That's true. Another thing capitalism isn't is the rampant environmental destruction and degradation that is associated with our inability to price externalities. Anyone who says that we should just destroy the environment because that's pro-competition or capitalism has a screw loose. That's not true. There are definitely market failures. And the mother of all market failures is climate change because people aren't internalizing the cost of their own behavior. And there's no market that is able to do that. That's where the government has to step in and create a market or use taxation or regulation if the market alternative is infeasible. So this idea that, oh, regulating emissions or having an exchange for carbon and carbon emissions or having a carbon tax is anti-capitalist makes no sense because capitalism itself is the solution to a market failure. Modern capitalism reflects the solution to the market failure, which is we didn't have a globalized economy at a large scale and with high sophistication before. And it took a lot of national and international institutions to create the, the property rights, the contracts, the rule of law, the governance structures, and to reduce transaction costs so that we could have this system of exchange and innovation. Yeah, and it also shows how state action, as we discussed earlier, and market action is effectively complementary because it's exactly as you say, when a state policy effectively changes prices in a way that makes it feasible to innovate in, in ways that use different kind of energy sources, for example, or then you will see the market react very extremely in that direction, right? Like often it only requires certain assurances that are being issued by the state to say, okay, in five years, we're going to change whatever law on some pollution regulation, and you will see venture capitalists completely changing their funding priorities and funding different projects that effectively then create the kind of innovation that enables companies to abide by those pollution regulations or completely create new sources of energy, new uh, products or new vehicles for transportation, for example, that then circumvent whatever pollution regulation that is being put up. Nick, brilliant. In fact, if we had a market to exchange carbon emissions, if we had a global market, but let's just say even a national market, where you could cap the quantity of carbon emissions at whatever threshold we need to get a handhold on this problem, you would see resources flow to their more efficient use and you exactly. would see misallocations corrected. Currently, the market is distorted in that we don't internalize the cost of the emissions. And so there is a lack of capitalism in a sense. 
Exactly. Yeah. If you were to cap emissions and could trade the ability to use them, only the firms and factories that absolutely had to use coal would pay to, for the privilege of using coal. And everyone else would innovate both in technology, but also management of the firm to reduce their footprint. Because now you're internalizing the cost. You have to pay for it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The, the problem is we haven't given Mother Nature property rights and she deserves them and needs them. And in fact, doing so would make capitalism better, right? And so there's a vast literature in microeconomics and in environmental economics on pricing externalities. Another thing I would say to listeners, please work your way through a very old-fashioned article in, written in 1960 by Ronald Coase, which spells out how to do this and spells out how maybe you can't create a market that internalizes externalities with secure property rights and reduced transaction costs where you couldn't get carbon trading, let's say, then absolutely the government steps in and regulates the economy, maybe through very aggressive policy instruments, be they taxation or even command and control. And the reason is because that's a genuine market failure where you cannot come up with a market solution. But that itself is a better allocation of resources. So it's complicated. It's complementary. Sometimes the market works. Sometimes the state has to do something. Sometimes it's both working together. But it's understanding the basic machinery and logic that allows you to get at better solutions. And not to confuse the ends, which is let's reduce carbon, with the means, which is let's have the government regulate it or tell uh, firms and consumers what to do. Perhaps that is what's best, but maybe it isn't. It really depends on a, a critical analysis. And there's been a lot of good work on how to maybe create a viable carbon market that could adequately price carbon if we can cap and trade it. Kind of lost that narrative a bit with all the you know, insanity, to, insanity that is our modern politics and how polarized things are. But President Obama uh, put this forward early in his first term back in 2008. And I don't think we should lose the the plot here on this, it might still be viable. Uh, and what's very, to me, gives me a lot of hope is that I see a lot of firms stepping up and saying, let's have a carbon market. A lot of Fortune 500 corporations, including those that are responsible for a lot of the emissions, uh, at least in the corporate environment or the industrial environment, they're saying, let's step up, let's have a carbon market. If that doesn't work, let's have a Pigovian tax, another way of doing it where through setting a price, we are able to constrain the quantity of emissions and therefore get a grasp on this problem. I ask you a question. Oh, yeah. What do you think, this is kind of a rehash of what we've said, but I want to hear it in your own words. Mm -hmm. What are the biggest misconceptions about capitalism? And what are some questions that can be formulated in the language of science that could gain traction on those questions so that we're not left in ideological camps just yelling at each other? What would be a research agenda that would say, okay, here's claim A about the world and here's claim B, rather than just shout at each other, how could we resolve this debate? How could we adjudicate it? What are some things you would want to do in your own research or just things that occur to you? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the start would be to do exactly that more often, to actually communicate things in that manner, that you either have a very concrete statement about the world that you're trying to test, like an hypothesis, but I think I would start even earlier than that, right? I think a lot of misconceptions about capitalism and about Marxism as well would probably be rooted out if people actually read uh, Das Kapital from Marx. 
That's easy to say you speak German, my friend. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't have to be in German, right? I think, so for example, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about capitalism that I see is that people assume that wealth is free, that there you can just take a certain level of uh, material comfort for granted. I think COVID might have corrected that perception slightly for younger people. Yeah, I'm not sure that's going to be sustainable. How could we find a way to translate ideological heated debates and exchanges into testable claims or make a more fruitful, make some more progress on this, make, it, make, a more, make this into a more fruitful exchange where we're yeah. not speaking past each other? Okay, so I think what I'm ultimately saying is that I think the most important thing to do is to infuse all these conversations with fact, to insist on people referring to facts, to remind people of fact, and to, to really show that the space for ideological disagreement is as large as it, as it can be, rather than as large as it can get when, when you don't really are constrained by fact. So I think making people aware of how dramatic improvements in, in welfare, in, in human welfare has been in the US, in, uh, in, yeah, in industrialized economies, in, in industrializing economies across the globe. I think that's really important. I think to provide a little bit more coherent or concrete research agenda, it would have to be um, a little bit more clear what exactly uh, the misunderstandings are or, or what exactly are the debates that you're referring to, Victor. Like, what is it that you think is the biggest holdup currently in uh, having a productive debate about some of the problems? Or rather, no, let me, let me ask a question that is even important before that. What do you think are the biggest challenges right now to human welfare or to American welfare? Well, those are two separate questions, but maybe I'll do the welfare thing and see if somehow you and I can spin straw into gold and go back to the misconception issue and whatever. The biggest challenge now is the slowdown in productivity that occurred since 1973, thereabouts, not only in the American economy, but across the globe. Do you agree with me? <laughs> I was mm -hmm. right. There is no that, boom anymore. That's not true per se, though, Nick, because I'm talking about average productivity. Of course, of course. I mean, of course, there, there are boom sectors. There have been islands of yeah. productivity growth, yeah, yeah. especially in the tech firms and in um, the digital economy and in certain and, and in other industrial sectors. The problem is that it hasn't diffused as rapidly as we'd like in terms of our objective being enhancements in absolute living standards and improvements in human welfare. It seems to me that if you're saying, okay, there have been islands of productivity growth, there have been islands of absolute GDP growth mm -hmm. right, that might have um, created the appearance of a growing economy. Well, it has grown, just not as fast as it had before. Right. I let's think the not doubt is... the facts. Let's look at any GDP uh, figures and, and look at the trajectory. It's just yeah. that the derivative is different, right? Thank, thank you for correcting me, right? Yeah, I think that's, okay. that's important, right? I think right. GDP has grown, yes, but it hasn't been associated with the same average welfare improvements that we used to impute on GDP growth. And it's and because say, it's grown at a slower clip, yes. Yeah, but I think the, the additional question that I have would be, is it possible that growth that is derived from different economic sectors might have very different effects on the average welfare improvement that, you, that is experienced throughout the economy? An economy that is industrializing, that is creating a large, large manufacturing sector, might have a very different outcome in average living standards than a service economy 
that is very strongly dominated by, say, tech companies that are providing tech services, but they're only really needing a very few, very high-skilled workers. And they might create a lot of growth, but it's not really disseminated very widely. That's one hypothesis. The hypothesis is this time is different. Mm -hmm. That the nature of the firms competing, the nature of the innovation, the nature of the financial system and its allocation of resources has fundamentally changed. Mm -hmm. And that that might be responsible for the slowdown in productivity and therefore might also be motivating the critiques of capitalism. Right. I'm sort of partial to that, but sort of not. There's an alternative explanation as well. The other explanation is that the lag effect is as it has been throughout the history of modern capitalism when it comes to the first generation of innovations versus their dissemination and diffusion. If you think of the first industrial revolution and you think of the steam engine and you think of the automated looms that powered textiles in Great Britain, it took a while for that to diffuse. It took a while for that to matriculate into higher wages for unskilled workers, even skilled workers at first. It took a while for that to generate positive knock-on effects on the rest of the economy. If you think of electricity and the internal combustion engine, hallmarks of the second industrial revolution, it took a heck of a long time, actually. Some economists, economic historians and macroeconomists say between 50 and 70 years, between when Edison had his first uh, station in New York City that lit up that city and maybe some homes and factories and the like and, and street lamps versus having the diffusion of electricity across the economy, especially the industrialized sectors, the factories, and therefore allowing a reorganization through the electric dynamo and electric engines of the entire economy and of the factory system and the ability to mechanize production on the shop room floor instead of having these massive clunky conveyor belts that were run by steam power. Internal combustion system as well with the internet, interstate highway system with the ability to have containers in the global economy transport international trade, right? With the fact that you could convert it into jet fuel and have an infrastructure for airports and a lot of the infrastructure that went into bridges and tunnels, et cetera. Again, we're not just saying it was the market, it was the state as well. And the fact that you had these networks that could distribute goods and services at larger scale and at a lower price. The third industrial revolution also took its while between the innovations in hardware, software, artificial intelligence, etc. cetera, uh, that go back to the 19th century, in fact, that go back to code breaking with return in, in uh, the allies versus the fascist powers in World War II. And it took a while for that to matriculate into the economy where you finally got personal computers and you had automation due to computerization and you had standard essential patents that drove uh, revolutions in computers and eventually in handsets. I would like for you guys to look into the work by Stephen Haber and Alexander Galatovic, if you have a chance, listeners, that chart some of the course, at least when it comes to the tail end of that with digital technology and handsets. Stephen Haber and Naomi Lamour are putting out an edited volume on how intellectual property rights fueled the second and third industrial revolution, and in fact, the first as well. I have a chapter forthcoming in that edited volume that speaks to some of what I'm saying here. Their work on standard essential patents tells this story, 
And in fact, it took a while, but eventually prices collapsed for computers, for flat screen TVs, for mainframes, for digital technology like uh, handsets. And that led to a lag in the diffusion. And we're finally seeing it, let's say, in Zoom in the fact that it's allowed us to be productive despite the pandemic. The problem that Robert Gordon brings up, and he does it eloquently, is that the third industrial revolution lagged. It didn't take longer than the other lags for the first and the second when it comes to the steam engine and electricity and internal combustion uh, engine respectively, but it wasn't as pronounced in that it kind of fizzled out and productivity slowed down by the mid 2000s and it hasn't really recovered. So that might say this time is different. And that's where I have a thesis that might concede to that point. And, and I say in my book in progress, and I'm not the first to say this, there could be something about the third or fourth industrial revolution, if you think about AI and the internet of things now, in that the diffusion is harder because it takes higher skill, a higher skill set and more knowledge and a more nimble workforce and just more education and more patience even to disseminate this stuff versus electricity on the shop room floor in a factory in Cleveland, let's say in 1935. So it could be that the lag is going to take longer and there's more effort we need to put into getting that productivity to reach the high skyrocketing rates that we were accustomed to after World War II during the so-called golden age that Robert Gordon speaks of in the rise and fall of American growth. That means there could be some market failures here that governments could more aggressively solve. And this is something I discuss in my book in progress in terms of helping diffuse this technology with education, with skill training, with reconceptualizing vocational education, something Germany's been good at, if you want to talk a little bit about that, uh, actually, Nick. But it doesn't mean, and here I will be normative, I guess, let's not give up on the ability to harness technology and innovation to solve our problems and make our life better. Let's just figure out innovative solutions. Do you want to speak a little bit about education and vocational education in general, how we could do that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the solution is. I think um, I agree with you very much that it's been kind of surprising to see, in my opinion, how little, especially the American education system seems to be reacting to the increasing digitalization and sort of the increasing importance of areas like or issues like uh, data science, statistics, coding and AI literacy, if you will. There's been, yeah, basically, apart from some uh, advanced uh, degrees at universities, I don't really see anywhere where you can really attain those skills. Now, I frankly have a little bit of a worry that the returns to those kinds of education just aren't there for a lot of people that there is really just no incentive to create those kinds of institutions or maybe it's just maybe it's hard to um, transmit this kind of knowledge may, for, for the reasons that you mentioned right maybe there's something inherently hard about those kinds of skills to to bring them to mass market but I have a little bit of a um, worrying suspicion that maybe these technologies really aren't as transformative as we thought. I'm not sure what exactly a mass market or, or what exactly the mass market would be that would require a lot of people to be very, very good at coding. I'm not sure where those jobs would be for a lot of people. I think that there are some clusters, human capital clusters, where the returns to those kind of skills are very high. And I think there people are obtaining those skills. But I'm not sure those are there sort of throughout the country, say in the US, but also in, in, in Germany, where I'm from. 
Um, there are some pockets where those skills are scarce, but at the same time, I don't think that there's necessarily a mass market. So I think it's simultaneously a matching issue, but I'm also not sure that the returns are high enough. That said, I think another issue is generalization or um, standardization. I think just one example is that sort of the standard uh, statistical language, for example, has changed multiple times in academia. So for a long time, it was SPSS, then it was Stata. Now it seems to be R, possibly it might be Python. I think even in this small microcosm, it's not really clear what the human capital skill is that, that, the sort of, that, that people should be investing in, right? Now you could argue that the switches aren't that great, right? So if you're really good at Stata, you're gonna figure out R. But I think that that's also a partly an issue, right? That as you say, that dissemination of those kinds of skills is only possible when they're standardized. Yes, James Besson, a technologist and economist. Nick, do you remember the name of his book? Learning the name by of Doing. The book? Learning by Doing. What you bring up, Nick, is so incisive in that that's one of the major contributions of the book and something that's important to this conversation. Only when the mechanized looming was standardized did you see rising living standards for skilled and even so-called unskilled workers because they had outside options. They were, the fungibility was actually good for them. They had leverage and they had value rather than every factory having its own technique. One could also look at uh, electrification as a similar situation in the second industrial revolution. Once you standardize the outlay of factories and mechanized factories in a turnkey way, an off-the-shelf way, you could get unlock the productivity gains that could trickle down to skilled workers. Workers. And you could convert human capital into higher wages and higher living standards. Now, let's speculate a little bit about the fourth industrial revolution. What could we do with AI, with digitalization, with Zoom, with uh, some of these technologies that are out there? It might not be coding, Nick. Fair it enough. might be that with standardization, you get complementarity in human capital that has more to do with the liberal arts. Like, how can I commercialize this to make people's lives better, to make products they want to buy so that you can shift out demand curves and people would right. be willing to pay for things uh, a higher price. And as an entrepreneur, you're able to shift the supply curve out so you're able to provide this at a lower cost. And therefore, you get higher surplus. You get consumers that are happier, and you get producers that make more, and you get workers that are sharing in that surplus because it's their productivity that's driving the gains in, in surplus. And therefore, with labor markets that make sense, they're able to capitalize that into a higher standard of living. It might not be coding, right? It might be softer. Yeah. It might be empathy. It might be the ability to understand how to convert the promise of AI into what people value. It might be learning how to use Zoom more effectively. It might be learning how to be a coach or a counselor and using those soft human skills, but marshalling technology to have a global audience. It's not clear to me that social media has really shifted uh, demand curves outward at all. Right? Like what, is, what is the new product that is being sold? It's the platform that allows people to produce value in ways they couldn't, that it's now global. That's where you're pushing out demand curves constantly. For example, we are creating this podcast. Hopefully people are willing to pay for it with its time because we have the ability to use a digital platform called Zoom. And in the middle of a pandemic, we haven't lost a beat, at least when it comes to this exchange here. In fact, we hadn't 
thought of doing a podcast for the political economy forum till COVID. You see what I'm saying there? I do, I do. So you can graft exchanges onto digital platforms. Here's a silly example that people are familiar with. We can call a cab or a, a, which one do you like out of the two or three that are out there right now? The one that's not with an ooh. Okay, so I don't want to be a show for Uber or, or the other ones out there, but you can call an, an Uber. You can call a ta- someone on TaskRabbit. You can connect people through Airbnb to find a place to stay. Those are shifting out demand curves, people willingness right. to pay, and also shifting out supply curves, the ability of entrepreneurs and businesses to provide things at a lower cost. I don't want to get into the gig economy and whether it's exploitative and whatnot. That's an empirical question. I'm just saying it's shifting out demand curves and shifting out supply curves. The larger question, though, was about the skill set, right? Yes, exactly. And not necessarily the platforms or automation or, or AI, artificial intelligence, right? What are some things you have in mind as a young person? I'm totally plugged out. Sorry, what, what do you mean what I have in mind? What are things like where we have a future economy where digital platforms help, but there's just new goods and services and things out there? Yeah, I mean, I and guess it's, it's not necessarily everyone's a coder. Um, I think my, my question is more, I think where I'm struggling to conceptualize or to visualize how this will look is more like, what are we working and how are we sort of like um, living our lives, right? In this economy that is completely digital. And what, are, as you were queuing, what are the goods and services that we're consuming, right? What is the value that we really care about? Right. I think ideally, ideally the uh, trajectory of capitalism is, is one in which we have to work less and less for the things that are absolutely necessary because we're more efficient, more productive. Our technologies are allowing us to effectively create more from less. So we, we have more and more optional things that we're doing, if you will. And um, it's not really clear to me that that's really happening. I'm not sure if that's really happening, right? That like, what, first of all, what, what are the kind of jobs that you would be having in a digital economy and what are the goods that you're consuming? I think is what I'm most... <laughs> Right. Confused about. Well, let me say something to end things, if that's okay. It isn't General Electric and Westinghouse that represent the electrification revolution and the second industrial revolution. It's not the providers of electricity, right? Mm. It's the fact that factories were able to unleash productivity and human capital potential they didn't understand they had. And so I hate to say it to Amazon, Facebook, Twitter, Google, whatever. I don't think we're going to be talking about them in a hundred years necessarily. They will be interesting footnotes, but what they allow us to do if we let them is unlock potential. And it'll be goods and services we don't even understand that we have demands for. And it'll be entrepreneurs we haven't even met or may not even be alive yet that'll figure out how to do that and therefore reallocate goods and services in a more productive fashion. And that's where, for me, education, and let me make a plug for old-fashioned liberal arts, is very important. It's the ability to know the history of the world, the humanity philosophy, art, and also in conversation with science, political science and the social sciences, that maybe will help us unleash our potential where we're like, we can use that AI algorithm to make life better, to make our leisure time more valuable, to make progress on diseases that we don't even understand yet. Because we understand how humans function, what makes them fearful, what makes them hopeful, what fills them with regret how to deliver goods better. It might not be technical solutions, but the AI will do the technical part that we're not as good at. We're probably better at the humanistic stuff. 
I think there's this conception, right? That like there's one way that we're going to like somehow figure things out and then everything is going to be great, right? That society will be fixed, that we figured out the economy and that uh, we've solved politics or something like that. It's, it's a court and permanent session. Like this mm -hmm. is never over, right? Mm -hmm. Like you always have to figure out problems and mm -hmm. you're going to have to fix it. You know, that's just part of it, really. With, with all respect to Francis Fukuyama as well. And he wasn't saying that we were at the end of history no. necessarily, but it felt like it, right? Boy, yeah, was that wrong. <laughs> exactly. I think a lot of the criticisms that are leveled against capitalism are, are completely understandable and in a lot of ways legitimate grievances that should be addressed, right? I think that they're best addressed within the institutions that you've described as um, characterizing capitalism. But that does not mean that there's not a lot of work to be done. And yeah, that's why we should get to work, I think. Let's get to work. Let's roll up our sleeves. I totally agree with you. We'll never not have to do that as human beings.